Yeah, we'd do the Chinese edition. We'd just rotate how many falafel. <laughs> well, you just assume they're miking you, and then you'd be like talking right to the little guard that's listening in. <laughs> you know, if you happen to be someone who's listening in on someone's family conversations, you probably that you should repent of that. And <laughs> so, for context, we've done the last two weeks. We've been doing Passover. And the and the amazingly large chapter 12, which we've broken up into three portions. Tonight we're going to finish 12, and we're going to get into chapter 13. And we're still not going to get to the Red Sea scene. So it occurred to me, like, it's interesting how between the very colorful action of the plagues and the very colorful action of the Red Sea scene, there's like three or four chapters in between here that seems to be extremely important to the writer. And I feel ripped off because in like Sunday school, you never really cover Passover and the meaning of Passover. And it would th- seem like simple things you could tell your kids about. And that's a huge theme tonight is you're supposed to tell your kids about this. Um, and I just thought, wow, I should, I, I've really appreciated the Passover stuff and I've been blessed by it. And it kind of speaks to your life a little bit. So we're going to spend another night in that and we're going to get them out of Egypt but we still won't have armies of Pharaoh chasing. That'll be next week. So that's where we're at. Um, big picture, God has birthed a new congregation that he calls Israel, uh, uses the word congregation. They are now free. They're taken off and they've been saved because they were under the blood. So this is kind of an epic piece of history and that's where we're picking up right now. Verse 42 of Exodus 12. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. He's referring to the night as the observance of Passover. So we just got down with three descriptions of Passover. This is the night that of the of the Lord. This this is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generation. So solemn observance is used twice. Um, it is shemur, or a night watch or a vigil. And the word shimmer is often used in the military. It means to stand guard. So it would have been, this is a a standing guard for the Lord uh, when you have this Passover feast. The poetic part of this verse, so this is kind of an interesting verse because it's a transition verse from those descriptions we just had. In the Hebrew, this is actually a poem, verse 42. Um, So you can see some repetition in there. So when you look it up, uh, that Shemur is, is the solemn observance is in there, um, but it's surrounded by Lael Shemur Jehovah, or night observed Jehovah. And then the next part, the second part of the sentence, this is the night that the Lord, a solemn observance for all children. That's a lot of words in English, but it's only three in the Hebrew. So it's Lael Yehovah Shemur. So I just think it's really cool when you see poetry. This is the kind of thing that gets memorized. Lael Shemur Jehovah, Lael Yehovah Shemur. So a night that observed Jehovah, the people of the earth got to see Jehovah, and then Yatza Eretz Egypt. They got to see Jehovah spring up or create or born a nation out of Egypt, right? That Eretz is a creation word. We saw it in Genesis 1.12, Genesis 2.10. We saw Eretz all over the place in Genesis. So that first sentence, this is a solemn night, solemn observance of the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt, is Lael Shemur Jehovah Yatza created out of Egypt. So he bore this nation. The second sentence, Lael Jehovah Shemur, this is a night Jehovah could be observed. So as terrifying as this Passover night would have been, it was a night that they could stand vigil and watch God act on the planet Earth. And if you know you're protected under the blood of the lamb, that's kind of a cool thought because we don't get that opportunity. We don't get to like stay up late at night and see God do his work. The closest thing I can think of is when I stood vigil waiting for Santa Claus, right? And you shimmer, you wait for Santa Claus to show up because you want to see it happen. And all I got from that was disappointment. Like it wasn't the magic, but the the Hebrews would have seen God do his work and as terrible and powerful as it would have been, Lail Jehovah Shemur, the night Jehovah could be observed. Ben Israel Dower, the children of Israel. Dower is all, many, ever. So it says all the children of Israel throughout their generations is just Dower. All of them. Everyone in Israel could see God do his work. 
So this is what starts a nation is people who have seen God do work. This is why every week we ask, what's the Lord doing in your life? How are things going? Are you watching and are you seeing? Are you on vigil trying to look for what God is doing in your life? So it goes both ways. Um, God sees us and we get to see God. Um, And that should be for all generations or ever generations is another way to interpret Dower. God made this Israel for all generations. Um, Jeremiah reflects on this particular passage in Jeremiah 23, 7. It says, Therefore, behold, the days to come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought the ch- up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It's basically referencing this kind of verse, this memory they're supposed to have. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. (coughs) This idea that they're supposed to remember that the Lord has brought the children out of Egypt comes up numerous times throughout the Old Testament. The Lord God Almighty who brought us out of Egypt. It's like a tag on to the title of God from here all the way until Jeremiah says, that's going to change. There will be a point at which the children of God no longer say the Lord that brought us out of the land of Egypt. They're going to say the Lord which brought us from the seed of the house Israel out of the north country and from all country, countries where I'd driven them. That's happened. This was a prophecy that happened because right now Israel was brought out of all the countries of the planet earth and they've been remade as a nation. So And it's interesting because they give, many of them give God the glory for that because they weren't in a position to make their own country, but there they are with their own country. I thought that was kind of cool that there's just this all generations thing that God made Israel and that God's given the glory for Israel, even in out of Egypt phase and now out of the rest of the world phase. And we're in the rest of the world time for Egypt right now. Verse 43 And the Lord said to Aaron and Moses, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. This is a confusing passage, right? So should they eat it or shouldn't they eat it? Can they eat Passover or can't they eat Passover? So God's kind of setting this out a little bit. um, And essentially... If you have been circumcised or if you've come into covenant with God, then you can eat this Passover. If you haven't, if you're just a traveler, if you're Grandma um, Ethel from another country and you're visiting, you're not supposed to eat this. This is just for the children of God. But it doesn't say just for Hebrews. It just says people that are in have been circumcised or have been in the covenant. So it's interesting that anyone can, but not everyone has taken or can take this Passover. A sojourner is... Um, someone who would be traveling through or stopping or staying in your household. So someone who's just kind of traveling. In other words, I think what this is, is this is something that's supposed to be sacred. This is something that's supposed to be set aside for the children of Israel. It's something you do in covenant with God. In one house, verse 46, it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So we get these little additional rules as they're about to go forward. Um, The body, of course, of the Messiah, according to um, prophecy, should not see rot or corruption. And it should never see that. And same with the Passover lamb. It shouldn't be buried and it shouldn't be carried outside the house. Therefore, it should, when we see that happen, we don't want want to see that go on with the body of Christ. And it doesn't. So John references this as fulfilled in Jesus that they didn't break his legs, the second part of the sentence. They don't break his legs. John 19.36 says, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. John's referencing Psalm 34, verse 20, where it says, He guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. And the Psalms are talking about this Passover and the lambs not being broken. So this idea that God's people shall be protected and guarded, that's a piece of this memory. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. 
And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near it and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. No uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. No foreigners are supposed to partake. But those that obey God aren't foreigners anymore. They're as though they have lived or as though they're a native in the land. So when we say the word native, that's a ethnic or a racial denotation. In the Bible, when we see that, it's really not. Um, so a native is anyone who's partaken of the covenant of God and, and their family's been, the males of the family have all been circumcised and they've made this commitment to God. The congregation of Israel, therefore, is not a racial concept either. Um, the goal here isn't to keep people out. It's actually to allow a way in for people to join into the nation and be part of it. All right, and this gets to be a really tough passage, not for us today, but for those early Christians. Remember the epistles? They have all these discussions about circumcision, and this is the passage. And you could see where, frankly, the Pharisees and many of the early Christians had to figure out what to do with the Lord's Supper, right? So should the Gentiles get circumcised? Shouldn't they get circumcised? Sarah, welcome to Bible study. We're talking about, you know, (laughs) very personal things for guys. Um, But we just, this, you can, I I don't, I read that and I think I would have maybe been, it's hard to think how we would have reacted in the early church if we lived during that time, but I would have had a really hard time with it. I've been like, the Bible says Gentiles are welcome into the congregation, but they got to get circumcised, you know? Go in and see a doctor and take care of business. If you want to be in God's kingdom, he asked for this very small thing to be taken care of. But he asked for some side of commitment. When you go to buy a house, you got to put earnest money down on the house so that they know you're not playing with the purchase, right? So you got to put some cash down on the table. And I think circumcision's about that idea. If you really want to be part of the kingdom of God, put some earnest money down. Like make a commitment, right? Um, and that's what this law's in spirit, what it's supposed to be about. But it got to be like a religious thing. And that's not what it was meant to be. It was meant to be kind of this commitment that's more than just a passing fad kind of thing. Don't take the Lord's Supper if you're not going to commit yourself to the Lord. It's for the fellowship. It's for the brotherhood that you do these things. Romans 2, 26 through 29. Therefore, this is Paul's response to that debate. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, if somebody's holy, doesn't that count? Like they're living under God's law. That counts as circumcision. And and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? So you can get circumcised and be a sinner. So you can have uncircumcised people that live holy and you can have circumcised people that sin. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. God then validated this. The reason Paul's writing this is he saw uncircumcised people get healed by God. He saw uncircumcised people exercising the gifts of the Spirit in various ways. And he saw the church coming alive with all of the gifts of an unquestionable God intervening in the early church. And he's like, look, it has to do with the heart more so than any sort of physical act. Um, As a definition, then, that's another way that Paul would have been reading these verses. And I think it's commentary we should be reading, too if we respect that Paul's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a solemn event. It's a solemn evening. It's to stand vigil, to pay attention to God, and you shouldn't partake in this if you're making a mockery of God. This should be a serious kind of commitment and a serious event. And I think that would be kind of something. There's playful parts of Passover for the kids. Let's eat the lamb really fast. Let's dig in, kids. And then there's these things where you kind of stop and you breathe and you say, Let's remember what God did for us, right? It's singing Holy Night instead of Joy to the World. That there's parts of this this event that have somber, reverent nature to them, and there's parts of it that are just fun. So when Jesus institutes his new remembrance, 
all of these rules still apply to the Lord's Supper. And most Christians adopt that stance with the Lord's Supper. So you'll hear in a church, if you're not part of the body, don't take the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer, we ask you to not partake, right? Have you heard that before? And different churches handle that differently, but th- these are the verses where that comes from. Uh, and it's very clear, you're not supposed to be doing that sort of thing because um, God doesn't take kindly to people that mock these rituals. Verse 50, thus, I love the word thus. We don't use it as much. I tried using it in a paper once and the, the editor got back to me and said, we don't use thus. And like, and I, they made me take it out. And I was like, thus is a great word. But anyways... Thus, all the children of Israel did. Wow, that's pretty cool because they weren't listening to Moses 40 years ago, but now they're just doing it. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. (laughs) That's what all of this was about. And it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. I like that these two concepts are passed. They just did what the Lord told them to do and bam, the Lord starts acting in their life. And I think that's just kind of how it works. And we'll see that again and again and again as we go through Kings and Chronicles and some of those things. Unlike in Genesis, in Exodus, the primary actor in the story is God. So the Lord brought the children out of Israel. This is what the Lord has done. Thanks, Shadow. That's the onions. Uh, that's going to be on the recording for ever. This is at minute 16, if anyone wants to go back and play that part for their friends. (laughs) Moses is just a man in 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 3. Remember he said, the man Moses, he's just a baby that got killed. He's a failed prince. He ran from trouble as a young man. He's this old shepherd guy, 80 years old, hanging out, and God introduces himself in the burning bush. All of Exodus has been about God as the primary actor in world history where Genesis was more about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right? But Exodus, we see God as the actor and introducing himself. God works in Moses because Moses shows his weakness and because Moses is not perfect, God works through him. So as I'm doing the Bible study at this particular point, and I wanted to share this with you, if you've ever seen The Princess Bride, they'll be in the middle of the story and they'll be at like a really good part, like right before the Red Sea is going to part. And then there'll be like this voice that comes onto the movie and it's, uh, Grandpa, what about this? And Grandpa, and the kid interrupts and you flash back to the bedroom and then you're like, I was right at the good part too. Are you sure you meant that, Grandpa? And that's like what I thought of about this. Like I'm reading this part and it's like, ah, the story's over. Everything's done. And the Lord brought the children out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. And then I heard that little kid going, uh, Grandpa, what about the Pharaoh? Like, it's the end of the chapter, like the end of the scroll, and there's this thing, and you're thinking, well, isn't Pharaoh still out there? And I know he's ticked off, and I know the end of the story, but what about Pharaoh? Um, So, as a typology of Christ, as a story of how believers act in the world, getting freedom is just the first step of the story. It's not over once the people of God have freedom right? There's a fight to be fought that still has to be going on. And the enemy is still going to attack the Israelites and go after them. So we're far from the promised land. There's this whole journey that we get to go through in the book of Exodus. Um, But if you think about it, brand new believers or brand new children of God are loaded down with all these blessings, right? The gold and the silver and the wealth and whatnot. So they got all these blessings. They got all their freedom right up front. But this is a slave population has no idea what to do with their freedom. They're vulnerable. They have no weapons. They have no towers. This is when they're at their weakest. And if you want to destroy the nation of Israel, the best time to do that in world history is right now when they're a traveling caravan heading out from Egypt with nothing but unleavened bread in their backpacks, right? This is when you're going to get them. So the Lord brought the children out of uh, Israel, according uh, out of the land of Egypt, according to their armies, uh, is the last passage there. But the language here shows that conclusively the way this is worded is this is the end of the story. So we're clearly at the end of a scroll right here that would have been part of the set of scrolls that goes with Exodus. 
this is it. It's finished. It's done. God saved them. He's redeemed them. They're a nation and the curtains close intermission. You got to wait a year for part two to the story to come out in the theaters, but we don't. We're going to go straight into chapter 13. So chapter 13, what does it look like for the body of Christ as a new congregation to get up and running? And these are passages that aren't easy to absorb as a child. But as an adult, we've been through all this. Like as new believers and veteran believers, some of these things will feel spiritually familiar, but uh, it gets going where the Lord speaks to Moses. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever happens in the womb amongst the children of Israel, both man and of beast, it's mine. (laughs) One of the first things to do as a believer is look at your life and start setting aside things that are sacred. Consecrate. Take some things and be holy. When I first got saved as a 16-year-old after a, a preacher was talking in a campground in Colorado at a biker rally, that's where I got saved. I was a kid on the back of my dad's motorcycle and we were at a biker rally in Colorado. This preacher's talking and he gets done and he's like, you can either be on God's side or you can be on the enemy's side. So make your choice. And I'm like, pick God. I mean, it didn't seem like a big deal to me, but then I got home and I looked at my tape collection with my ACDC and my Metallica and all these other kinds of things. And I thought, you know, that's probably not the kind of music I listened to. So I took all my music and dumped it destroyed it. All my little tape cassettes crack and they, and whatnot. And then I, it, I really regretted that because I burnt up a lot of really good classic music. But at the beginning of my my life, when you're not able to discern and kind of have some maturity around those things, yeah, just if you think that's the thing you need to consecrate, do it. And in that respect, as I got to be more mature of a Christian, I thought that was a great thing to do as a young man. Get the crap out of your life. Just take it and dump it. It's not worth anything. Um, and now we have Spotify, so it's not like I lost anything, you know, at the at the time. If I really want to get all, you know, retro or nostalgic, I can still pull up a song that I used to know. And the kids are like, Dad, you know the words to a lot of old music. And it's kind of like, yeah, I really have always liked music a lot. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Like, take those things. Kadash is consecrate sanctify, set things apart, dedicate things, give them to God. And at some point, God owns everything anyways. So he's only asking for the firstborn. You know, if that cow continues to have another 10 cows, he's not asking for everything else. He's just asking for the first fruits, right? It's like tithing. It is tithing, right? Psalm 50 verse 10 says, God owns every beast of the forest and the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all God's anyways, and I remember, I, I think I've told you all about my pastor, Jeff, when I was asking about the tithe thing, like, how does that work for pastors? Do you tithe the tithe money? Like, how do you, like, what happens? And I was just curious. And I was a grown man asking this question. And he just laughed at me and he goes, man, it's all God's. I don't, I tithe 100%. Everything I have is God's. And it was like, well, that's an odd way to put it. But he's like, yeah, I appreciate what I get, but I don't really, I don't have an income. The church pays my bills and I kind of go hoping that everything will work out. But it was an odd perspective. But that idea of it's all God's is extremely true. So it's not a heavy theological point here. um, But it's just that thought of consecration. An even lighter theological point is God owns both the man and beast, which is a great argument that animals will be in heaven. Because God owns them. They're his. So me having my pet bears... I can hope for something like that. Again, very light theological point. I think Lewis took that and started writing books with that idea that God owns the beasts too, and they are his. So I think that's kind of cool. Right, Shadow? Yeah, he's being a good boy. I won't bug him. All right. The heavier theology then is God owns everything. The more mature you get as a believer, the more you realize you didn't earn it. It didn't come your way by your own strength. Um, and that it's pretty much God's altogether. And I think that's a great place to be. Verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the... By, for by strength of the... Of hand... For by, for by strength of hand, 
The Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you're going to go out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Parasites and the Cellulites. They're the large people from up north. I had to do it. Which he swore to your fathers to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. I see this, again, we're kind of at the beginning of the next section, and I'm not going to go through these verses, verse by verse, as much, because we just got done going through it three times last week, right? That's the Passover in summary. That's what it is. I like the idea that there shall be a feast, and I'll come back to that. Um, You should have a a life without lemon bread. So number one, consecrate your life. Number two, get the sin out of your life. Number three, there's a feast to be had. And I think that's kind of cool. The sacrifices start in joy. You're going to sacrifice something, but they're going to end in joy. There's going to be a feast at either end of Passover. First uh, Peter 1.12 says, And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly await watching these things happen. What a cool image that all these celebrations we have are being watched by the angels. Revelations 19.7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and the bride has prepared herself. Blessed are those who get invited to God's feasts. And I think that's a cool idea. And if you're looking at the life of a Christian, it starts out with enthusiasm and this excitement of being a believer. God loves me. There's good news, like Peter was saying. And then at the other end, there's this wedding feast of the Lamb. Our lives as believers look a lot like Passover. There's a feast at either end. And in the middle, there's the work that we got to get done, right? And, and, And that sort of thing. Those are hard times that come in the middle, but they're a lot easier to handle if you know that what's waiting for you at the end is a nice feast, right? Unleavened bread, verse 7, shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall the leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. Remember, leaven is uh, an image for sin throughout the Bible. Consistently, uh, unleavened bread is bread without sin. Um You're redeemed by God, and the appropriate response when God redeems you or saves you from death should be to get sin out of your life because it's what he asked you to do. That's the appropriate response. It's not your works that save you, but out of love, instead of saying, I need to do all these things to get saved, you say, I am saved, and I'd like to do these things because God's called me to be holy, and I'm going to be holy because he's holy. Um, And you're As a church, the congregation is the bride of Christ. So continuing in the next verse of Revelations 19.8, that bride, she's she's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. God's holy people should be above reproach because they run from sin, and they keep their homes clean, and they keep sin out of their life. Is that possible? No. And it reminds me of talking with Sam, my friend, who's an appraiser. We're talking about somebody who's struggling a little bit with getting it right. In appraisal, you make a mistake, it can put you in a courtroom like that because you're dealing with property values on property. So if you make a mistake in your property evaluation, you got to go to court and defend your mistake because somebody's going to lose a lot of money, right? So it goes to these places, and then banks get upset with you because that costs them money. They want to make money. They don't want to be in court. And Sam's thing is, even though we make mistakes, mistakes are okay, but the goal should be no mistakes. So we always say no mistakes, and that what you're shooting for is to not make the mistakes. It's not that you excuse your mistakes because, oh, you know, we all make mistakes. The goal should be to get rid of the mistakes and to erase them knowing that you're going to make mistakes once in a while. We all do sin and we fall back. Um, But the goal should be to keep your home clean. Verse 8, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out from Egypt. And it should be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth 
it's funny the Pharisees put the things on their bracelets and then they put the little uh, what do you call phylacteries hanging down on their foreheads did I tell you about phylacteries before so the they've taken this literally if you go to like Orthodox Jews they have a little box that dangles between their eyes and what it is is if you open the little box it's got the law of God written in, in into it and certain passages and they roll it up in a little baby scroll and they took it in this box and it hangs down in between their eyes. And then they've got bracelets that have phylacteries on them too and they keep the law of God in the box and they literally do this, but they don't do the third part of the sentence, which I think is great um, because it shows how that's not what is meant to be here. It's meant to be like, you're supposed to just keep it in, in mind. It's supposed to be in front of you. Um, because you don't see them put phylacteries in their mouth, right? But that's part of the same sentence. They should do that. Um, For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Um, Oh, I have a note here saying, haven't talked about phylacteries yet. I should just read my notes. Um, These phylacteries get expensive and ornate. They've become like a symbol of like, I'm the most holy guy around. So they've gotten to be really fancy and everything else, but I don't think that's part of it. In fact, Jesus condemns it in Matthew 23, 5, and he says, but all the works they do, the Pharisees, uh, are to be seen by men. They make their bro- they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments because they're trying to show off how holy they are. So that's where this comes from is this passage. And you're supposed to do this, um, but you're supposed to do it in spirit, not in, in, in kind of a literal thing. Um, none of the Jewish traditions took up the habit of eating paper with God's word on it. Um, so the point here is to memorize. I think of it as flashcards. Like if you, like when Steph got a kick, she's like, I want to memorize lots of Bible verses. She'd add little flashcards in the kitchen and in the bathroom. And then I started to memorize too, just because the flashcards sitting there and you're brushing your teeth. So you start to memorize the Bible verses, right? Um, But the idea is that you just keep God's word in front of you so that you can put it in your heart. You memorize it. Um, But don't eat paper, and that's not what this teaching is all about. Verse 11, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's that open the worms. So, Again, this is actual birth. When it says open the womb, we are actually talking about firstborn males. Unlike the firstborn as a concept of leadership in the family, this is actual firstborn. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. For in all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. In other words, you're not going to keep that firstborn. Donkeys don't give birth as often, so you could use a lamb as a substitution. Again, that imagery of the lamb being a substitute um, is consistent throughout the Bible. Um, This would seem to a herding population culture that this would be extremely wasteful. I mean, this would sound like just a big waste of things. But when you trust God with little things... He redeems that. I'm really praying as Noelle goes into next year. Noelle, if you're listening, she's doing 18 credits this next semester. It's going to be super hard for her to redeem that time to do Bible study on Sunday nights. I'm convinced if she carves that time out, she'll be blessed by that. If you make the time for the Bible study, the rest of your life just seems to be easier. And I'm convinced, because we'll see it throughout the Old Testament, when the Jewish people are doing what God says and they're following the law, they're blessed as a nation. They are abundantly wealthy. Like under Solomon, there's lists of the wealth of, of Israel. So there must be something about giving up your firstborn, which is not a path to wealth. That's a path to poverty, right? Killing off your livestock. But it actually, God blesses them and they have twins next time. Or there's ways to be, that God can redeem that and do it. Uh, the word redeem there is padah. It is exactly what we as Christians think that it means because it's not just symbolic. God's trying to build this concept right into the Jewish people. To redeem something is to pay a ransom for it, to rescue it, or to be the deliverer. So he's giving this lamb, you shall redeem with a lamb. You usually redeem with money or with wealth. So to redeem with a lamb is kind of an interesting way to word it and phrase it. 
Um, but money here is not specifically named. Um, it is just a term or redemption that is used for that. So if you want to save your firstborn son, you have to pay for him to stay. All the firstborn of man amongst your sons, you shall redeem. You have to pay something to keep your firstborn son. Um, like adoption. You adopt your own son from God. And that concept is something because God gets that firstborn son. I think, uh, this is a side note. Again, sometimes I say things that I don't know are theologically sound or not. They're just questions I have. I wonder this idea of redemption, if when Jesus was on the cross, that he was fully human, he was fully God, whatever theological dance you want to do around that. But he's on the cross and he's feeling the life flow out of him, right? He's feeling like, I'm not going to make it through this. And I wonder if some level Jesus the human read this redemption idea. If you want your firstborn son, you can just pay for your firstborn son. You can redeem your firstborn and keep it. And Jesus is realizing, I'm not going to make it. God's not coming to save me. Like, I don't have to get myself off the cross because God will redeem me. I'm his firstborn son, right? And that thought might have been what was going through his head right before he said, Lord, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why haven't you redeemed me? Like, what's going on here? And that maybe even Jesus was at that point where he didn't quite know what was coming next because as a human, he's not necessarily seeing into the future. But theologically, that's really problematic because Jesus sees into the future in a lot of different ways. But you wonder at that moment if he felt like God should be redeeming him and that would be something or I don't know. But he does say, why have you forsaken me? There is a question that Jesus asks on the cross that is one that implies he didn't know the answer, right? And I think that's just kind of a thought of redemption that's going on. Here's another little piece. I want to go all the way back to verse 1. And we just, if you didn't notice it, there's a part of you that feels like, are we repeating ourselves in verse 3 and verse 8 and verse 7 and verse 3 and verse 1 and verse 12? Why are these concepts repeating themselves? And then you should start to think, wait, this is chiastic form. This is stuff that little Jewish kids should have been memorizing. So, Notice that in verse 1, it talks about consecrating and setting things aside to God. Notice in verse 12, the same theme is brought up. Verse 3, it says, remember God or tell your kids about God. In verse 3, and then in verse 8, you're supposed to tell your kids about God. This is a remembering thing. Then look in verse 3 and in verse 7. Get the leaven out of your house. Clean your house out and get sin out of there. Then look at verse 6. It's not repeated. So in chiastic form, consecrate, remember, clear out your sin, feast is right in the middle of the chiastic form. And you all are chuckling at me because you know how much I like food. But there's something huge here. A life in Christ does start out by making some things sacred. It's the simple things in life that you do that God wants to honor. He wants to show you that he loves you. If you set this aside... I'm going to honor you. Remembering God and telling other people what God's done. We don't forget. When we see God do something in our life, we are supposed to, we are obligated to tell other believers in encouragement and tell non-believers in evangelism. We're supposed to tell people when God does stuff. And then we're supposed to keep the sin out of our life. These are huge components of a life with God. And feasting is a huge component too. It's the center of the chiasm. Why? Why is eating together so important? Because there's things that bring humans together in intimacy. We eat together. We study the word together. Praying together. Man, if you can pray with people, it just brings you really closer together. I know a lot of guys that struggle with things with their wife. One of the first questions you ask people is like, do you pray with your spouse? Well, no, that would be weird. We both pray on our own. It's not weird. Get over it. Pray with your spouse. Take a knee together and pray together. And the more you pray together, the more you really get to see each other's heart. If you know how somebody prays, you know them. Um, because you can't hide in front of God. So I think it's really interesting, this chiastic form is 
easy to read over, but they're really showing you, here's what a life as a child of God, as a children of Israel, this is what you're supposed to do. And you say, oh, I don't know what to do as a believer. Well, start by giving something to God. Take something that you have idolized or put high in your life and say, I'm going to give God 10% of that. As you go on in life, maybe you want to give even more of it. So burning my tapes wasn't such a horrible thing in my life. It started a walk with Christ that the Lord has actually brought me back to feasting and joy. And music's a huge part of my life. But I had to give something up in order to get that back. And I've gotten it back tenfold. Not only could I listen to music, but I had a kid who plays music. Like from age five, he just came out of the womb singing songs. You know, really freaked the doctors out. Here's another way to look at this chiasm. These four elements, right? With feast in the middle. When we set things apart that are sacred, the whole point of giving something up for God is to see what God will do. If I give this up, God, what will you do? And I don't want to say that you like make these trades with God because God's way bigger than that. But I think it's amazing that the God of the universe wants to reveal himself to you. And if you never give anything up, you never get to see what God's doing in your life. Right? Does that make sense? Or you're just kind of waiting for random miracles. But if you say, Lord, I'm going to set aside this time. I'd like you to use it. And then God uses it. That's amazing. Right? And you start seeing these things. So you're supposed to, in sacrifice or in consecration, you're supposed to see things. When you tell other people, you're using your voice. When you're getting the leaven out of your life, it's so that you have ears to hear what God has to say in your life. You, the whole, the, a lot of the noise of the world makes it so you can't hear what God's trying to do in your life. And feasting is about taste. And I just thought it was interesting that you have sight, voice, ears, and taste. How do you live a life for Christ? You give yourself over to Christ. So you see God, you hear God, you, you listen for God, you talk about God, and you feast together with other people. That, that your body, your, your whole life is part of it. Life in Christ starts and ends with making things sacred. Day to day, we tell people about God. Day to day, we keep sin out of our lives. And in the middle of that life is joy. There's a giant feast in the middle of it. How do we tell people about that? First of all, you can't tell people about the joy in your life if you don't have any. And if you don't have any, you probably have sin in your life. And if you have sin in your life, you're probably not telling God about what God's doing in your life. And if you're not telling God about what God's doing in your life, you probably haven't consecrated your life to God. You really haven't given God anything. So why would you expect God to be doing anything in your life? But at the middle of it all, when you meet an alive, wide-awake believer, there's just an abounding joy there. And it drives some people crazy, and it really draws other people in. Like, why is this person so happy? It's like, because my life is a feast. This is awesome. I constantly want to give more things up for God because I want to see what God will do when I give that up. You know, what if we take the TV out of our living room? What will that do in our life? What if we take the TV out of our house? What will that do in our life? And it's not because you have to. It's not a legalistic thing. And that's what unbelievers often confuse. We don't get rid of the TV because we have to or there's some religious rule. We're not in some cult or weird thing. It's because we want to see what God's going to do in our life if we don't waste all of our time with that. How will God redeem the time when we redeem the time, when we consecrate the time? Anyways, I got a lot out of those verses. And when I read through them again, I'm like, where did that all come from? But I really feel like that's just one of those things where I love the fact that in this chiasm, right in the middle, there's a feast. Right in the middle of our life should be joy and abounding joy. And if that's not there, start looking at those other elements and praying and asking God, how do I do these other things? I don't even think we can do these things without the inspiration of the Spirit. How do I know what to consecrate if I'm not asking God what's in my life that I need to concentrate? God made it easy. Whatever, you, whatever your first fruits are, you get them. And in the Christian walk, later on in the Bible, we'll see tithing as part of that. When you get your paycheck, before the government gets your stuff, take the first tenth of that paycheck and just give it away. It, it frees you from service to money. But think of all the other things in life we can be enslaved to, that you could just take the first tenth of it, give it away, give it to other people. It's kind of awesome. Let's take the first tenth of our groceries and just give it away to people on a Sunday night. God totally redeems that with friendships and relationships because people like free food. Verse 14. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? That you shall say to him, 
By the strength of the hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I'm thinking this is a weird interaction between parent and child. What is this, thi- what is this thing we're doing with Passover? Well, by the strength of the hand, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Kid, the Lord runs our life. That's why we're doing all this stuff. Doesn't make any sense, Dad. Doesn't have to make sense. We're just doing it because God said to. God made us. He saved us. We'd be dead in Egypt if it wasn't for God. So we're just doing what God says. And it came to pass, verse 15, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, again, this is still the parent talking, therefore, kid, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. I paid for Grant because I want to redeem him. And if Shadow ever had children with his fancy friends, then we'd take that first one out of the womb and we'd sacrifice it. Why are we doing that, Dad? That's a cute puppy. Firstborn of every beast, we just give it to God. Because puppies aren't the center of our life. As cute as they are, we don't live for puppies. So we give it to God, and God blesses us. There's more that come out of that womb. (laughs) Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn my sons I redeem. It shall be, verse 16, it shall be as a sign on your hand and as the frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. What a cool thing. Verse 17, Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. I'll come back and talk about that. Although there was, that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. I'm not going to take them this way, because if we go this way, all the Israelites are going to get chicken and run back to Egypt. We can't have that happen, right? We're gonna burn, we, we need to burn some bridges here and not go back. Verse 18, So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So there's a coastal route that is still active between Egypt and Philistine, or or the, the, the land of the Philistines, which is Israel today. You simply follow the Mediterranean Sea, and there's this nice, flat coastal road. You barely even need pavement. It's flat. It's been windblown for years. It's like a big, wide, open thing. You can bring armies through there. It's nice and easy. That's the way of the land of the Philistines, and the Egyptians still call it that. So we know that route, which means if you're in Goshen or at the top of the Nile Valley, when it says it's near, it's because you're pretty much on the road. So when they say that route is near, it's because you just keep going east. There's another route which is not as likely, which is the um, Sinai Peninsula. It's large, right? It would take a long time to walk that route, but the only other flat route you could bring armies through is straight south down along one of the, uh, there's the Red Sea ends in two little fingers. And one of the debates about what this route is, is which finger. And in between those two fingers is the Sinai Peninsula. So one route is to go the way of the sea right here, The other route is to follow along down this edge of the Sinai Peninsula. Make sense, my map? Okay. So, God led the way. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, so God led the way around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. When they say wilderness of the Red Sea, um, that the only that you can't go back west that's Egypt if they weren't going east the only other route you could go is straight south which doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to get to the holy land it's the other direction so god in leading them the right way the shortest point to israel is not a straight line in god's head it is this completely opposite direction route and i love that image of like sometimes when you first start your walk with god God takes you the exact opposite way of the way you think you should go. The world's telling you to do this. God says, I want you to go the exact opposite direction. Why does he do that? Because he wants to see if his people will trust him. It's as simple as that. And he's going to show them the way too. So the Israelites have some training to do. They're not ready for warfare yet. They're slaves. Um, And God sees these dangers well before they run into them. 
Interesting, God's leading them away from danger when he does this. So in going the way God says, even though it seems like the wrong way, he's actually saving their lives. So traditional sources have them crossing the Gulf of Suez. Um, But that gives a clue that Egypt controlled the Sinai Peninsula already because it says they were near. In other words, where Egypt is today is not where Egypt was then. The Egypt of this era would have owned the whole Sinai Peninsula, right? So when they say they assembled in Succoth, remember we said that's where the armies used to gather? That's either east of Egypt or it's south of Egypt. Those are the only two flat areas where an army could gather, right? So we don't quite know where Succoth is. Archaeologically, they haven't found it because it was a big field. So there's nothing that would remain there to dig up. Way of the wilderness, then, the really only possible way where you go out in a wilderness, wilderness is unsettled territory. The only unsettled territory then and now is the Sinai Peninsula. The middle of it is all mountains, and it's horrible territory. And there's some really small little desert towns, you know, where they sell trinkets and stuff. But nobody really lives on the Sinai Peninsula. It's a wilderness, and it was then and it is now. The Red Sea then has those two things. The route they're taking then is a J-shaped route all the way around the Sinai Peninsula, which ends in that other finger of the Red Sea, which means there's they're heading towards a dead end. Again, when God tells us to go a certain direction, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Most of the Israelites wouldn't have known they were heading towards a dead end. But Moses, as a child of the Pharaoh or as growing up in the Pharaoh's household, he would have known that this was a dead-end route. The only reason he's doing it is because he's obeying God and God said to do it. But he would have known what they were headed towards. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Do you remember when we did that in Genesis 50? Isn't it kind of cool when you see that stuff come back around? So way back in Genesis 50, verse 25, it said, And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He was not put in a grave. So they took his body, they hauled it out of there, and in verse 19, they fulfill that promise. 430 years later, Jewish people don't forget. They're like elephants right? Um, Symbolically, carrying Joseph's body out of there means you're on your way home. You weren't going anywhere before, but now when they pick up these bones, I think it's like New Believer 101. This place isn't your home. We're going to take these bones. We're going to go towards our home. We're going to pick them up and go. But They're not there. They're on their journey. Verse 20. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and at night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. God knows how quickly we forget when he does things in our lives. And he puts these reminders out there, these constant reminders for these new believers to show them the way that they should go to follow God. Pillar is a mood. Pillar really means upright or column. So it's not like a pillar you see on the front of a building. We have no idea how big these pillars were, but it was something that seemed to be vertical or upright. Cloud is anon. Um, The last time we saw the word anon was when God put a cloud with a rainbow. Shadow's helping me out tonight. In Genesis 9, remember there was a covenant after the flood um, between God, and God made that covenant not just between God and man. The specific wording in Genesis 9 is he made a covenant with every living creature of all flesh that's on the entire earth. So that covenant was with the whole earth. This cloud seems to be God carrying out a covenant with the children of Israel, right? Um, The fire, Esh, Literal fire, ash can also mean a symbolic fire. It can be either one. Uh, obviously, if they're following it, I think the passage here means that it's a literal pillar of fire. Um, but throughout the Bible, it's used symbolically too, just so you all know that. Verse 15, 17. Um, oh, wow. mm. Sorry, sometimes my notes, 
have to remember them. That ash, that sim, that fire that we saw, has also appeared before in Genesis. Genesis 15, when God was making a covenant with Abraham, and he was seeding this nation with Abraham, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. That was ash, that burning torch. So <clears throat> the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire are using the same words that we got from Genesis with the covenant of the rainbow and the covenant with Abraham. And those covenant sim- symbols are both now in front of the people of Israel. Symbolically speaking, they have reminders of their history right in front of them, and that's how you start as a new believer. Study the Old Testament. Read the word and know what God has done. Those are the things you put in front of you, and you follow it by day, and you follow it by night. So, again, we still have this image or this metaphor for how to live our lives. Moses has seen that fire too. Uh, That same ash was also an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Same ash being used there, the same kind of fire. And in that case, it's a a real fire. Uh, It's the same word we see when fire gets sent from heaven in Genesis 19.24 on Sodom and Gomorrah and on Exodus 9.23 in the ninth plague same ash that comes out of the sky. It's also the same word that gets used for the lamb of the sacrifice. God makes it clear the lamb shall be consumed, and he makes it clear three times. Exodus 12, 8, 12, 9, and 12, 10. Right in a row, boom, boom, boom. Ash or fire then for the rest of the Bible, and already consistently in the Bible, seems to be a symbol of covenant. It represents God himself, Um, And it's used in the cases of sacrifice or calling. This fire of God shows up in people's lives when God's about to do a thing in their life. The Holy Spirit is given the word fire too. There's a great song right now that there's a fire burning inside of me. Spiritually speaking, same fire. It's the same fire that showed up to Moses. It's the same fire that made a covenant with Abraham. It's the same fire... That, that comes out of the sky in judgment. It's God. And that God, that holy fire, that Holy Spirit is in our life, and it should be. How do you live as a new believer? You let that fire sit right in front of your face. Keep your eyes on what God's doing and where he's doing it. Find people that love the Lord and hang out with them. That's how you're going to start your new walk in faith. Verse 22. He, <clears throat> God, did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night from before the people. Who sustains that? God. If you're not seeing that in your life, ask God to open your eyes. God keeps his presence immediate in our lives. From before, that's an interesting, so it says, did not take away the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Before is paniem or face. (laughs) So, Sorry, tickle. The literal translation of this then is pillar pillar of fire by night from face the people. So it's it's the Hebrew word for up in your grill or in your face or something that's touching you. So a, a more modern translation might be pillar of fire by night from in the grill of the people, right? And I just thought it was a, an interesting thing because it's actually the word face and in this context, it means a plural, kind of up in their faces, or a presence that's in your face all the time. So you think of this upright thing that's in front of them, this image of something that's upright being in front of your face. We should know what holiness looks like because we read about it, we study it, we hang out with it, and we know what it is. And even though we may fall and fail to be upright, it's in our face all the time. New believers get convicted about stuff in their life all the time and it never goes away you always get convicted of man i should work on this and i should work on that and as believers we don't beat ourselves up about it we just allow that conscience to stay alive and soft we don't harden our hearts to that we keep it in our face all the time and that's a good thing to have it present um Psalm 105:39 says he spread a cloud for covering and fire to give light by night. Um, the cloud is a relief and you think of this. So in the Psalms, David is kind of 
celebrating this cloud and this fire that they're going to travel by for a long time. If you think about it, if you're out in the desert sun, what could be better than a cloud that stays with you all the time and is in your face, right? It's like Khalil getting a, you know, forget it. I won't make references to the Jonah movie. At night, what could be better than a nightlight? What could be better than to know that the presence of God is before you, right? And I don't, I think in the movies they present this as like this giant pillar of fire. And I just, I don't know, I think of it as more God's usually the still small voice, right? What if that cloud were just a cloud that just happened to stay over them all the time? And at any given time, it just looks like a natural thing. But after 40 years, you start to say, no, that's pretty much God keeping us in the shade. Like, life is good. We don't suffer the same way other peoples do. And at night, when I should be scared of the wolves, there's a light that just comes out that shines. And it's simple and graceful and beautiful. And it's something we can take faith in because we see it. So these images become powerful images for generations of Jewish people. And we see them written about in the Psalms. Here's another one, Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord God will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from the earth of those who walk uprightly, who walk like a pillar or who walk towards a pillar, right? The Lord is our sun, our light, and he's our shield, our cloud. And for those who walk rightly, he always, he never withholds his blessings. What a great and comforting thought for this group of people that had to wonder what was going on, right? The people here, Am, Hebrew, is again, we see that word as the congregation, the nation, right? People is an odd thing because we think of it as biological, but it was the congregation. It was the mixed multitude that came with them. It was all of these people together decided, we're going to be a people. And I think that's such a great image. Egyptians, Israelites, whatever other slaves Egypt had gathered, there's going to be a whole mixed hodgepodge of people that walk uprightly and follow the light. Keep that focus in front of you. Next week, we keep going with the life of a believer. These images don't stop. They become how the Jewish people should have trained up their children and how they should go. So in the meantime, Egypt isn't done yet. Sitting back in the wings is Pharaoh fuming that he just lost two million slaves. His economy is destroyed. His people hate him and blame him for everything. You need a scapegoat. So back in the corner at the very end of this chapter, we see Pharaoh just sitting on his throne, seething, ready to kill these nasty new believers. The world has let... So these Israelites might have freedom, but the world Pharaoh, he's not quite ready to let him go yet. And if he can get them while they're vulnerable, he's going to go after them. And he's going to bring his armies and and there will be a grand battle in his head. And we will slaughter them all and the blood of the Israelites will be in the sands of the Sinai. But it's not going to go like he's thinking. But for now, he can have that moment and it it creates a to-be-continued kind of thing to close on for tonight. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, these chapters that are so easy to read past, Lord, you've just laced them with truths. Um, you have connected them to the rest of the, the word of God in just ways that are powerful. Lord, the way in which you use words like fire and pillar and upright and cloud and those images and those words get used by multiple authors all over the book with perfect symmetry and that they just balance out, Lord. It gives us confidence that no matter what pop culture is saying about the Bible, that there's just a symmetry to it. There's a perfection to it. Um, and it's beautiful. Lord, the chiastic form of consecration and purity. Um, and Lord, the idea of just that feast, that joy that should be in the middle of our life, Lord. Uh, what an amazing image. What an amazing construct, Lord, that you've built in your word. Um, things that are easy to see that a, a child can discover, like solving a puzzle. Um, Lord, these aren't high theory things. You don't need a degree to find them. They're just sitting there waiting for those that dwell upon your word and celebrate it and put it before their faces and on their hearts. Um, Lord, that we put it in our mouths so that we can speak it to other people. Lord, we want to tell people and remember what you've done and how you've done it. That's part of our journey as believers. 
that we can celebrate and share those stories with our kids and with other people in our life. Lord, give us joy. If there's anyone in the room right now that doesn't have abounding joy in their life, Lord, I just pray that they look at that chiasm and they study their life and they pray about it. And Lord, not on their own strength, but on yours. Help us to turn to you, Lord, and ask for your help to be the kind of person you made us to be. Uh, Lord, give us great joy. In the flesh, we just that wears so thin and so quick and it feels hypocritical, Lord, but in you, it just, it's authentic and it's real. It's amazing and it's abounding. So Lord, I just pray for that in the heart of every person here. Help them get sin out of their life. Help them tell people about you and help them to consecrate and set apart things so they don't serve idols uh, and they don't fall back into what Egypt had in their life. Lord, so I pray for each person here. May you bless this week. May you go before us. May you stand in in shade over us and in light before us. Show us an upright uh, path to follow, Lord, and to do it each day. Never leave our presence, Lord. You promise that you'll be with us every day. So be with us, Lord. Help us to set ourselves apart for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Cheryl.